You're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 102.7 FM in Vancouver, B.C., and this is the Local Brown Bagger, a program of locally recorded speeches related to important social issues. On today's Brown Bagger, Dr. Bruce Alexander, Professor Emeritus from the Psychology Department at SFU, Simon Fraser University, talks on globalization and addiction. He was speaking at the Wask Center for Dialogue on October 16, 2007. Just before his speech began, Dr. Alexander accepted a prize in controversy from the university. This prize was awarded from a fund established to promote research in subjects that are controversial. He begins his speech by tracing the trajectory that led to his studies on addiction and then describes one of the new concepts he developed in the course of his studies, namely the myth of the demon drug a concept that was highly controversial in the 1970s and continues to be very topical today. Whose research and communication skills have brought science-based facts and measured commentary to the intensely polarized discussion of drug addiction and its effects on people and communities. Bruce Alexander has devoted the last 25 years to defending an adaptive view of human addiction. Now, some regard addictions as a moral failing, others as a violation of religious beliefs, but most see addiction as a physical or psychological uh, ailment that requires medical intervention, public health measures, and the forces of law and order. The adaptive model posits that addictions result from failure to achieve the kind of social acceptance, competence, self-confidence, and personal uh, competency required of individuals in a modern society. Bruce will talk more about this, I'm sure, in his talk, and talk about the many implications of that view. In the few minutes uh, now, I want to take uh, a few examples to outline the level of controversy that's attended Bruce's promotion of this point of view, and particularly uh, what it's cost him personally in this humane, committed, in his gentle and passionate stance that he's taken on this, uh, on this issue. And I'm going to excerpt from a couple of the many uh, supportive letters we received for Bruce's nomination. I first met Dr. Alexander 20 years ago as one of his undergraduate students when he was one of a few academics that have promoted discussion about alternatives to the war on drugs. At that time, I violently challenged his views on addiction. He responded by inviting me to be his honor student and to dedicate my entire project to defeating the central thesis of his theory. At that time, I would never have guessed that I would one day help to establish the very thing that I so strongly opposed at the time, harm reduction alternatives to the war on drugs, including a safe injection site established here in Vancouver, needle exchange, and a drug user's resource center. Uh, Dr. Alexander has researched, written, and responded to the need for a sea change in addiction treatment policy for, for two decades. Dr. Alexander has used his symbolic capital, his status as a professor, and the accumulated prestige of his academic credentials to enhance discussions about drug policy in the public realm through countless encounters with the media. He's also taken his case to the streets where he has provided hundreds of free lectures and discussions not only in high-hat society, but also in humble settings such as community centers and poor neighborhoods. And this is from another letter. Bruce has always been willing to confront the powerful and make them uncomfortable in an attempt to convince elected officials that most addicts do not conform to the lurid images the media and police love to spread, Bruce took groups of addicts to the offices of the Deputy Minister of Health in Victoria and the Federal Minister of Health in Ottawa. He was sure they'd never interacted with a street addict before, and he wanted these officials to finally see them as fellow human beings and then to hear firsthand about the harms the prohibitionist policies were creating. He testified before various committees, in the House of Commons and in the Senate in the U.S., trying to convince lawmakers that present drug policies, like alcohol prohibition earlier in the century, are not only ineffective, they actually make our drug problems worse. These ideas, for which Bruce has long been one of Canada's best-known proponents, were so distasteful to the American government that on several occasions the U.S. administration dispatched their national drug star and their ambassador ambassador to threaten Canada with dire consequences if we should dare to enact any of these heresies. Besides his passion and personal decency, one of the reasons Bruce's arguments are so telling is that he invariably backs them up with sound empirical research. 
His research has been influential in swaying media and politicians' opinions. Although, as you'll see in a few minutes, he's famous for his courteous, low-key style and refusal to engage in ad hominem attacks, his adversaries have, not frequently, have frequently not been so kind. In the past, our department, this is the Department of Psychology now, has often been besieged by irate callers and letter writers demanding that he be disciplined or fired, fired for endangering young people by stating his heretical views in public. On more than one occasion, Bruce has reluctantly declined to write letters of recommendation for deserving students, explaining to them that his name was such anathema to the agencies to whom they were applying for work that his recommendation would actually harm rather than help their chances. We have had former students who did manage to get hired by some of these agencies come back to tell us how vehemently he had been denounced in their staff meetings. So this brief overview shows how Bruce Alexander has successfully integrated the academic and socio-political spheres of his life. In the process, he's become a public intellectual and has frequently been vilified for his activist stances. His willingness to withstand the brickbats of firmly entrenched public opinion to the contrary and to confront it with carefully reasoned, empirically supported objections make him a most worthy recipient of the 2007 Sterling Prize for Controversy. I want to talk about the globalization of addiction, which is, which is my interest as a psychologist. And I want to talk about how research gets done in, in my world anyway. And I want to talk about the importance of controversy. I have not thought about controversy before. I've, I've seen a bit of it, but I haven't thought much about it as, a, as an entity. So I want to talk a little bit about that. I really have two stories to tell. Uh, they, they have a single beginning, and then I will tell story A and story B. I begin at the beginning. I came to Simon Fraser University at about the same time that those mountains on the North Shore arose from the sea. <laughs> it was 1970. I came actually as a, a refugee from, from controversy. I, I uh, had been at the University of Oregon Medical School and had found myself drawn into a controversy about a, a war that just didn't want anything more to do with. I, I wasn't drafted, by the way, but I found it impossible not to be part of that controversy about the war, I, and I think uh, for obvious reasons. So I, I came here to not be part of controversy. And I, I remember coming to a, a department meeting in the psychology department, which has been my home for these past um, 35 years or so, it was announced at that department meeting that, that there would be a course uh, opening because the person teaching the course on social issues wasn't going to be able to do it anymore and and who was going to volunteer the, to teach the course and I didn't volunteer because I didn't want to do that and I was an, it was announced to me a couple of days later that I might as well have volunteered because the youngest person has got to do the most onerous tasks and I was the the newest person in the department, and so I had to teach the course in social issues, and and that fit my interest because I I uh, certainly did not want to be involved in social issues, but I was I was interested in becoming a clinical psychologist. I, my my training has been in um, behaviorist and physiological psychology, but I was interested in becoming a clinical psychologist, and I thought, aha, if I teach the social issues course, they will of course find a way to teach me something about doing clinical psychology work with um, heroin addiction, because heroin addiction was very much one of the social issues of the day in Vancouver in 1970. Uh, some of you may recall, uh, but most of you will not, but it, but it was. It was it was a very, very hot issue in 1970, so it, it sort of fit my, uh, my interest. I, I mentioned this in, in particular because Sort of in my own defense, the the National Post. You may you might have seen it on Saturday. They, they have a, a big picture of me, and uh, underneath the big picture of me, it says "addicted to controversy." <laughs> and and that gave me a pause because in my field, you don't just say, "Oh no, I'm not addicted." You know, we all know about denial, right? You can't say you're just not addicted. You have to give it some thought. But I don't think I'm addicted to controversy. I don't think I even like controversy. 
And, and I want to uh, talk about that. I want to come back to that issue because I think there's, a, there's something very interesting about Ted and Nora's decision to give this prize. I think it's, uh, it raises some, some sort of philosophical issues, which I'll get to at the very end. So here I was. I was to learn about heroin addiction with the aim of becoming a therapist and with the aim of, of teaching about heroin addiction in my psychology course on social issues, which I had been dragooned into. And so I, I went um, to the, what was then called the Narcotic Addiction Foundation in, in Vancouver, a, a very good institution, which, which was a methadone-providing program in those days, and, and also a center of some very, very good psychotherapy. And I asked them if they would teach me how to do this, and they said they would. And uh, they did. I, 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 as it were, apprenticed with a couple of very good clinical workers in, in, in Vancouver, Alice Arce and Steve Dalajak, and also uh, Al Connolly. But I, I apprenticed as a clinical worker. And I, I even got sent to California, because in those days, all really important psychotherapy things happened in California. So you had to be sort of sent there to be blessed. And, and in, in my case, it was to be to be uh, given a course of training in, the, in family therapy at Stanford. So I, so I did that. And um, I went to work as a therapist in essentially 1970, late 1970. By 1973, I had learned that I, I couldn't cure anybody of heroin addiction. And that came as a big surprise because I thought that I would be able to since I was uh, fully trained in, in the art of behavioristic psychology. I knew all about conditioned reflexes. And because I had what was what was said to be essential at the time was was a non-judgmental attitude, and I had that too. So how could I lose? But I wasn't successful at at, at doing therapy. Nor I observed were hardly any of the people I was working with. In fact, none of the people were really very successful. I mean, we all have a, those of you who may do psychotherapy know we all have our little gains and occasional successes. But in terms of of, of really doing what we want to do as, as psychotherapists, curing people in a big way. Well, I wasn't doing it, and I, I, I saw that fast. I learned, however, interesting things. Like, first of all, I learned that heroin addicts, junkies, if I may, if I may use that word, I don't use it disrespectfully, junkies, are, well, I learned that they're, they're very real, uh, sad human beings. And, and you, may, you may think that that's perfectly obvious, but it, I can tell you that was not perfectly obvious in 1970. Uh, if we're talking about 1970, we're talking about a time in which heroin addicts were said to be criminal masterminds, uh, totally psychopathic, unbelievably clever liars, people of, of ultimate violence, um, not really human beings. Well, of course they are. Maybe we all discover that eventually. There's only people. Like we're all people, and 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 they are too. A particular kind of people. They're they're sad people. Really, people who are desperate for to fill a hole. But real people. Well, I also learned about the myth of demon drugs and and the power of that. And, and we need to we need to mention this myth. I, I I call it the myth of demon drugs. You may call it something else. This is the story that there are certain drugs, heroin being the the, the, the most known of them. There are certain drugs which, if you take them one time or a few times, you're, you're somehow converted into an addict, and you are from forever after, unless there's some kind of either divine intervention or some kind of, of medical intervention that, that unhooks the hooks that have, that have uh, operated to put you in that position. Well, this, this idea is a very powerful idea, but it, and it's one which if you th I believe is normally just sort of floats in the air without careful examination. I mean, people kind of know what's true, or they kind of know what's really unwise to think it's untrue, but, but it's, it's one which doesn't really get examined very carefully. And, and um, what I learned is, first of all, that even then it was a controversial idea. I think virtually all psychologists believed it then, but most of the social workers didn't. They would just say, well, that's garbage. You know, um, these guys have got a problem. Let's talk about that. Uh, forget about demon possession. It is actually demon possession if you think about it. 
the idea that there is a drug which will which will convert a person just like that into a into a, uh, a reprobate, a horrible, horrible, awful thing, uh, is exactly the medieval idea idea of demon possession. Only it's a, a modern pharmacological form of the idea, right? It's not it's not the devil that does it or the demon that takes possession of the soul. It's the drug which takes possession of the dopamine D2 receptors or whatever it is and, and makes this person into into a, a reprobate. You're listening to Co-op Radio CFRO 102.7 FM in Vancouver, BC, and this is the local brown bagger. On today's Local Brown Bagger, you have been hearing Dr. Bruce Alexander on the topic of globalization and addiction. He continues the next section of his talk by explaining the often dangerous implications of the myth of the demon drug. This idea in 1970 was a much more powerful idea than it is now, and that's that's where the controversy comes about. In 1970, it was really very unwise or imprudent to say that that idea was disastrously wrong. Now I'll say it. That idea is disastrously wrong. It's it's not so shocking now, right? But it, but it genuinely was in 1970. The reason that idea is disastrously wrong, well, there's, there's a, a thousand ideas, and I won't tell you only a small number of them. The important point for now is that that idea is a dangerous idea in the sense that it leads people into, it gets people into trouble. For example, if that idea were true, then we really should have a war on drugs. That means we really should should have capital punishment for anyone who would carry that, that drug around in the streets because a child might get it and be converted into a, an addict for the rest of their life. I mean, this it would be a horrible thing. If that idea were true, we really ought to be invading um, Colombia right now and, and, with, and spending billions of dollars to kill people, to prevent them from growing drugs, in the case of Colombia, is primarily cocaine, but it's the same idea. If that idea were true, we ought to, we ought to disregard all civil rights and make sure that, that, that these drugs were simply not anywhere where, where our children could ever, ever come into contact with them. Also, if that idea were true, there would be really no point in an addict trying to, do, to stop being an addict, right? Because why, how, how could they? Only God, through a divine intervention, or a, a psychologist like myself with, with supremely attuned knowledge of, of conditioned responses, would be able to unhook them from this, this incredible hook that, that they had uh, gotten themselves upon. And also, it's it's a it's a dangerous idea for policemen because because it it conveys the the implication that a person who has been converted has been possessed by a demon is not really a person anymore. They are something they are something alien. They are they are possessed, and and you can you can do what you want to with them really because it it doesn't matter much. And a lot of violence has been done with this this idea in mind. And, and perhaps most important of all, this idea says society would never have to ask itself the question, why is it that some of our children decide to live on the street in Maine and Hastings rather than to grow up into the future that we have so carefully planned for them? Or why is it that some others of our children might decide that it's, it's much more important to stay in the room and, and play video games all day than it is to take on the tasks which which we have so carefully calculated for them to follow in school and which will lead them to 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 good things. Society never has to ask itself that question if addiction is something which is caused by a form of demon possession, because of course it's just the devil drug that that did it, and and we have to get rid of the devil drug at all costs. If so. I think a, a dangerous idea. It is also, I, I may add, a, a very comforting idea. And I say this without disrespect, but, well, <laughs> with compassion. Because if you are a parent, some of you are, who's perhaps who's, whose child has fallen into some kind of drug addiction, nothing can be more horrible to contemplate how that comes about. How is it that this child has fallen into a life which which the child certainly never wanted to fall into and which the parents certainly never wanted it to occur and in which is going to cause untold misery how could that have happened what did we leave something out 
Well, this is a horrible question. Um, parents know these these kinds of questions, how how horrible they are. But but one good answer is well, he or she just took the, the devil drug, and the devil drug hooked them, in the, and it really had nothing to do with anything else. We can't blame the school, and we can't blame society. We certainly can't blame ourselves. Well, that's a pretty important gift that that idea, and, and it's it's an idea which is dangerous, but it's also an idea which serves very important functions for a number of people. I say this because I have done family therapy a lot with parents, and I, I, I know how crucially important that idea is and how much people rely on, on that idea. Later they may change it, but you, you could never try to change it at first. So I learned, I failed as a researcher, as a uh, therapist, and learned and became a teacher and researcher. So from 1973 to 19. 77, I uh, mainly taught at Simon Fraser and started teaching courses on addiction and again ran into the idea of, of the myth of, of, the, of the demon drug. There it was again. Here I am in a, in a seminar. Some of my former students from these seminars are, are, are here tonight. I taught a seminar on addiction for many years at SFU. Here I'm in a seminar and I'm trying to discuss how, how these kinds of problems come about and someone raises their hand and says, well look, it's just they took the drug and the drug hooked them and that's, that's the end of the story. Please don't bother us any further because we already know the answer. This happens. This happened a lot more in 1970 than it happens now. But it's, it's an idea which, which has the capacity to cut off all rational thought. Um, it's all done. The drug causes the addiction, it's all over. And in 1970, it wasn't just university students who hadn't been educated yet who thought that. It was the leaders in the field of addiction uh, all thought that. Not, well, all, virtually all thought that. They thought that was how drug addiction came about. And interestingly, they, there were three reasons for that they thought about it. And the first is the American Civil War. Everyone knew that, that the Americans had, in, in 1865, had started using you know, morphine as a battlefield drug and had produced a whole generation of, of, of junkies, morphine junkies, by doing that. The second was that, that heroin addicts often tell, and still often tell, the story about how they were leading a perfectly normal, totally contented life when they suddenly took the drug. They forgot to just say no and they became addicted, and, and they are hence addicted forever. Well, those first two reasons for believing in the myth of, of demon drugs are not very are not very powerful, and they weren't very powerful at the time. The Civil War one is false. The the drug addiction story, of course, is is impeachable. But the third reason that people believed it in those days was rat research, behavioristic research, and this is that there had been a whole series of highly publicized experiments which involved putting rats in boxes, and the rat has a little button on the wall, presses the button receives a little injection of, of morphine or heroin or whatever it is through the jugular vein, through an uh, implanted cannula, and the rat will go on pressing the bar forever under certain circumstances. If you, if you said it exactly right, the rat will in fact press the bar and, and forget to eat and you know, do, do damage to itself. And this, this was the basic scientific proof of the, the myth of demon drugs. Well. If you think about that, that scientific proof for any length of time, you, you will see that, that it too is, I don't want to say ridiculous, but it's, it's really a, a kind of a sad excuse for scientific proof because of course rats aren't people, number one, and, and of course pressing a bar is not addiction, number two, you know, addiction is a very complex inner and outer kind of state that, that human beings have, and it's very difficult to tell whether a human being is addicted or not unless you know them very well. Well, you, you really can't tell whether a rat is or isn't by how often they press a bar. But third, these, these rats in the boxes are essentially being tortured. I mean, solitary confinement is a, is a form of torture, even now it's part of the most sophisticated forms of torture. And rats, you don't know this, of course, but, but rats are extremely um, gregarious animals. They're colonial animals so-called, meaning that they, they always live in groups. So you've got a rat in a, in a cage all by itself. You, you, you're, you've got something which, which is akin to torture that's going on there, and, and so the rat is taking an anesthetic, and you shouldn't be too surprised. Our, our particular 
research at that point, which happened between 1977 and 1982, was to build Rat Park. And, and Rat Park was a, uh, a Garden of Eden for rats that we, we prepared. It's easy to give rats the Garden of Eden. They're not fussy. Um, you could give them some tin cans. You could give them some, some shavings. You could get anything that you, you got at the, the dump. You could give them, and they'd love it. The main thing they like is other rats, of course, and so you give them lots of other rats, and they play around on the tin cans, and they run on the running wheels, and they make babies, and, and they, uh, they have a really good time. And, and uh, then... You know, you give them the opportunity to take drugs, all the same drugs that, that they will take avidly in the in the single box, and they don't take them. I'm not saying they don't take them at all, but they take them at, a, at only a fraction, just a fraction of what they, they take them in the box. So the, the phenomenon disappears. The proof for the myth of, of demon drugs, inasmuch as it rested directly on rats, rested on nothing, because it was, it, it was a fallacious proof. There was an artifact in it, which, which explained it, it very well. We, and, and we replicated this every way, every which way from Sunday. You can, you can do this all different ways and it always works out. We had one non-replication, but, but all the rest were replications. Other people replicated, it's true. So in 1982, we closed up Rat Park and we, we sawed up the, the, the plywood container, which had been our, our Garden of Eden, and, and put that to other uses. and. This was a, a, a painful time, actually, to close Rat Park, partly because we'd had a lot of fun doing this, this research. And by the way, it was the people who did this were Patricia Hathaway and Robert Combs and Glenn Davies, and also for a time, Barry Beierstein. You're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 102.7 FM in Vancouver, B.C. On today's Local Brown Bagger, you have been hearing Dr. Bruce Alexander on the topic of globalization and addiction. In this segment of his talk, he describes another line of inquiry into the origins of drug and other addictions. He describes first what led him to this line of inquiry and to his other controversial thesis that the colonization and destruction of cultures is invariably correlated with widespread addictions among pawns. Now I want to tell the first of two stories that that begin with the closing of Rat Park. The first story is about why it was a very good thing in the end that we closed Rat Park. And the second story, which will come later, is why it was very painful to close Rat Park at that time. So why it was a very good thing in the end, which is not to say it was a very good thing in the beginning, but it was a very good thing in the end, it it was a good thing because rats are rats and people are people. And really, if you want to learn about addiction, you should spend as little time as possible with rats because they are, in fact, rodents. (laughs) (laughs) And people are not like that. But it was, we had a, we had a, quite a following at the time, and we're talking now about uh, the late 1970s and 1980. Well, you know, we did have quite a bit of following for this research. It served its purpose, and that was good. But really, it leaves open a question which can't be answered by, by looking at more rats, and that is, is it true of people? And if it were true of people, why would it be a true, true of people? I mean, what is it about the box? Do you have to put people in a, in a box, or is there some other way that, that you can, some more general thing you can do to people which makes them avid to consume drugs? So uh, uh, I set out to, to investigate these these questions, and that turns out to be very difficult. You're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 102.7 FM in Vancouver, B.C. On today's Local Brown Bagger, you have been hearing Dr. Bruce Alexander on the topic of globalization and addiction. I mean, you can't obviously put people in little boxes and give them all the dope they want because there's very little sympathy for doing that. And and you can't mimic or, or... there's no good model for this procedure. There's nothing you can do which makes a good alternative. You can, for example, look at the, the psychological literature on social isolation, and you'll find you know, social isolation is correlated in a, in a loose way with, with becoming addicted later on, but that doesn't tell you very much. The correlations aren't very strong. It turns out to be a very frustrating problem to do. Rat, Rat Park is a hard research act to follow. We, we couldn't follow it very well. And so we did a bunch of other stuff. And the, the, 
in these years between 1982 and 1997, the most, the best research that I did, I did by teaching my seminar on addiction because I, I met all kinds of earnest young people who really wanted to talk about addiction, and I learned how many people wanted to talk about the, their their mother or their father or their sister or their brother or themselves or their cousin or their neighbor. I mean, it's 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 a family issue, and and I I learned because people just they're dying to tell these stories, and and they, there aren't very many opportunities. It's kind of a secret thing, and. And so they can tell them in the, in the seminar. Now this is an academic seminar. It's not saying this is this is not an AA group. This is not a confessional. This is an academic seminar. But people find ways. They want their story in there, and they and they put it in. And 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 I want to hear them because because they they offer so much by way of knowledge and by way of grasp of the depth of this thing. Addiction is a very big problem. I think even now, let's say if we're in, we can say we're in the age of a renewed war on drugs, perhaps. Even now, I don't think we fully appreciate the depth of the problem of addiction uh, as a culture. I mean, it's a very big problem because it it means that a life is lost, right? The person doesn't die, but a life is lost. I'm not talking about drug addiction particularly. Drug addiction is just a corner of it. But if a person who gives up their life to something uh, which is trivial, as trivial as heroin, or as trivial, trivial as video games, or as trivial as endless purchase of consumer goods, or, or as trivial as endless narcissism, or any of these things, as this goes on and on and on and on, that's, that's about as big a tragedy as you can have. This is the tragedy of the living dead, right? This is, this is a person giving up a life for something which is absolutely unworthy, and it happens all the time. And people want to talk about it, and they they quickly get beyond talking about drugs because drugs are just a corner of it. Um, at the same time, this was being discovered in in psychology by other people. Anton Schweighofer and I did some some research um, in which we actually measured the the frequency of serious addictions which don't involve drugs uh, among Simon Fraser University students, but other people were doing it in other places and. And it's very clear now, addiction is not a drug issue. It's it's much bigger than a drug issue. And I say much more important than the, the stereotype vision of the of the drug issue. So by 1997, oh, I, I, I wrote a book. Uh, this is what we do when we don't have anything better to do in academia. I, I wrote a book because I didn't have anything better to do because I... I Apart from what I've just said, I, I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere with the problem of addiction, uh, so I quit. And I, I went to my department chairman and, and, and quit. The way it worked out is I, I went from a full-time professor to a half-time professor, and I, because I, I decided I was gonna uh, drop the addiction issue and, and uh, take up history. History of psychology is, I, is my other interest in teaching. I love the history of psychology. You'll love it too, but that's another lecture. Um, um, I was going to do history. And so I, in 1997, I, I roughly, I've forgotten the exact year, but I went on half time and, I, and I, I went on a binge of reading history because I wanted to write the, the history of psychology book. And I stopped teaching my addiction course for a time, and, and I just forgot all about addiction. But to my amazement, I, I had left it behind, but it came after me. That is to say, I kept finding addiction in my history books, and I hadn't expected to find it there. And, and, and in fact, in the end, the, the reason it turned out to be a very good thing that Red Park closed is that I found the answer, which I could not find by doing psychological research in doing historical research without even looking for it. And I'll tell you the kinds of things that, that I found, and you, you'll know, you'll recognize these things. For example, it is, it is the case that Aboriginal cultures in British Columbia, in Canada, in every continent, in every place in the world where uh, Aboriginal cultures are crushed by, by colonization, the effect is mass addiction. Uh, usually alcoholism, but not necessarily alcoholism. Now, that's that's not a little correlation. This is a big fact. 
a big historical fact is it's been uh, it's been observed countless times, hundreds and hundreds of times. This has been observed, and and what has also been observed is that by and large, the Aboriginal cultures that are made into cultures of addicted people don't have very much or any addiction there beforehand. Addiction is a rarity amongst any kind of well-functioning Aboriginal culture. Uh, but once they're broken down, addiction becomes a, a overwhelming problem. It happens again and again and again. Now think about that in the context of Rat Park. We haven't put these people in little boxes, but in a sense we've, we've done something which is equivalent. We've destroyed their culture. You can say if you put a rat in a box, you've taken the rat, you've obliterated the rat's culture, so to speak. Maybe culture is not the right word for rats. Let's say colonial life or society. But you see, you don't have to put maybe a rat or a person person in a box. All you have to do is break them out of their of the the cultural tie that binds all of us human beings, because. All of us human beings are, are cultural, social, gregarious creatures. That is, that is to be a human being, is that. Well, this story goes on and on. Uh, you don't just find it with Aboriginal people. Uh, you find it with, with white guys, too. And, and uh, my, my ancestors, take a look at my name. Um, you, you could guess where my ancestors would be from. The, the, the clearance of the Scottish Highlands was a was a, a case where, where um, white guys who lived in a very much a clan culture, that's where this word comes from as we use it at Simon Fraser University, it's where the bagpipes come from too. These people were, were essentially divested of their culture after the Battle of Culloden in the, in the mid 18th century. Uh, they were also divested of their bagpipes and a, a bunch of other things. Uh, their culture was completely obliterated on purpose by the, by the Brits for the same reason that they were obliterating Aboriginal cultures in North America, and with the same effect. Only in, in the, I mean, in terms of addiction, the same effect. The, the interesting difference is that in North America, the European invaders had to bring the alcohol. But the Scots already had the alcohol. They had the best alcohol in the world. And they already had it. They had lots of it. It wasn't an addiction problem until after the they were cleared off their land. I, you, you will recognize if you have any historical background at all that I'm making a very complex story here, very simple, but, but, but this, is, this is the essence of, of the story. And this story repeats and repeats. It, um, this is the story of, this, of the overwhelming opium addiction invasion in China, which happened in the 19th century. China had opium for a very long time and, and only a small problem of addiction until Chinese culture was, was essentially ravaged by what's called the Opium War. It's, it's called the Opium War for a, a confusing reason. It, um, it, was, it was just because it, was, it had something to do with supply of, of opium, but that really wasn't what the Opium War was about. It was mainly about opening China to, to Western uh, colonization from, from a, a bunch of, and Japanese colonization, uh, the effect of which was that Chinese culture was destroyed and Opium addiction became an enormous problem in China, where it, it had been nothing like that same scale before. This goes on and on. In 2000, I started writing stuff down and along these lines, and that's what I've been doing for the last seven years. I've retired in 2005, and and I've been doing a series of, of articles and now a book on the globalization of addiction. And what these say is that, and here of course I obviously cannot summarize all the evidence for you, but what they say is essentially this, that addiction comes about, whether it's to a drug or anything, addiction comes about because people don't have a place in some kind of an established social order. Uh, when they don't, I, I use the word dislocated for that, when they don't have a place in an established social order, they, they need we need, we need to belong. We need meaning. We need purpose. We get that socially. If we don't have it in our society, we get it through addictions. So if you've got nothing, a void for a life, 
you can you can join the uh, attic culture in the downtown east side. You can just go down the, the door and turn right, go three blocks and, and pull out a $20 bill and you're in. You can join that culture and, and, and it's a culture. It's um, it's real and it's you know it's not the best culture in the world. You you wouldn't choose it for your, your daughter or your son probably. But it's a it's a real culture. It provides some kind of place for people. And and that's true of, of all addictions. And here you just I can't I can't give you the evidence, but addiction does that. Addiction is a is an alternate life. The perhaps the, the evidence which is most vivid to me now is to sit and look over the shoulder of a child who's addicted to video games and watch what what's on that screen. What's on there is another life. It's another world. And it's a it's a welcoming world. It's really a great world that they're they're playing with and uh, a world in which they're they're adventurous and they can it's fraught with meaning. All their all the, the people they kill are bad. And when they get killed, well that's that's tough, but but they they get reincarnated about thirty seconds later, and 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 life goes on. It's it's an amazingly welcoming world. Why would anyone spend all their time in that world if they had another world to live in? Because it's a it's a banal, banal, trivial world too, of course. Well, they do because they don't have a another life to live in. They don't have another life that's working for them, and that's the story of of addiction. The story of globalization of addiction is that is that we are globalizing the kind of society which breaks down human culture. We are doing this knowingly. For example, we are knowingly breaking down what's left of the various Aboriginal cultures in this province. I've I've seen this myself. When we when we put a fish farm in a place where it where it destroys the the salmon run for native culture, we're we're doing a lot for the economy of the province because we're you know we're going to export a lot of a lot of salmon. But the salmon that aren't going to make their way back up to that that native that river and support that native culture, those salmon are more than just export items. Those those are those are not just food. That are that are going up that river. That's that's a whole backbone of a of Aboriginal salmon-based culture, and we do this all the time. We do it with our own children, not just Aboriginal children. This is an idea of the nature of addiction. It is it is as has been said a controversial idea. It is an idea which is being resisted now by the by the Harper Harper government, and I. This is not to say that it, it wouldn't be equally wasn't equally resisted by the Martin government, but it's being resisted specifically by the by the Harper government, who is who is now bringing in an anti-drug strategy. The anti-drug strategy is a is a visible move towards more enforcement of drug laws, more severe drug laws. It is this visible move is made on the basis of the claim that this will solve our our social problems, our social problems, not all of them, of course, but our social problems are largely caused by drugs. If we can get tough on drugs, we're going to get rid of our, our social problems. Well, this is a very good idea. It was first tried in Canada in 1922, the first time we got tough on, on drugs by introducing whipping as a penalty and uh, deportation and several other times, 1961, when we introduced mandatory minimum sentences for for drug uh, penalties, we yeah we we have we have got tough on drugs a number of times before. Getting tough on drugs, in my opinion, is a way of ignoring the complexity of a really big problem, and it's a problem which we ignore at our peril, because by thinking that we can solve our social problems by by getting tough on drugs, we are simply ignoring the, the complex nature of our social problems, which require that we do something much more difficult and much more nuanced than getting tough on drugs. We're going to do it, I think. We are going to do what we need to do to, to solve our addiction problems. You're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 102.7 FM in Vancouver, B.C., 
On today's Local Brown Bagger, you have been hearing Dr. Bruce Alexander on the topic of globalization and addiction. Dr. Alexander talks about the importance of controversy in academia and as a basis for finding solutions to social problems and in formulating new appropriate social policies. After his speech, we hear some excerpts from the question and answer period that followed his speech. I want to go on to talk a little bit about controversy. I find it, I have found it twice in my life impossible to be uncontroversial. Uh, the first time in the, in the States as with respect to the Vietnam War, and the second time now. And I find it impossible because I have I've taken the trouble to, to gain some, some real knowledge on the topic. And when I gain this real knowledge on the topic, it, it becomes absolutely evident to me that the decisions which are being made in my name by my governments are, are not valid. They're not right. And, and they're being made for reasons which I believe I can understand. I mean, there are economic reasons. There are priorities which, which are important to the governments involved, which can't be important if we, if we want to live in a world that we, can, that we can survive in while being sober. It's, I believe it is a very bad thing to be addicted to controversy, and I, I don't believe that I am. It would be a very bad thing to be addicted to controversy because it's just like being addicted to anything else. It's a waste of time. And there are, you, you will know, there are people who are addicted to controversy and they're always shooting off their mouth about this or that. Well, that's, that's a terrible thing. I don't believe that I am addicted to controversy. I believe that I have discovered in my, my <laughs> ancient age, eventually, that, it, that it, is, it is impossible to avoid certain controversies. And that I believe it is, uh, I feel it as a responsibility to be controversial in those areas where we know something about a topic and where we know that what's going on is wrong. And I fear that, that there may be an awful lot that needs to be controversial, an awful lot more than, than I know about. Now, I, uh, I want to tell story B, too. That's story A. Story B goes back to, the, to why it was painful to, to close Rat Park. Well, it was painful because um, we didn't want to close it. We wanted to continue doing rat research because we were all excited and getting lots of publications, and this is, the, this is what academics live for. And we had to close it because the, the, the money that, that was cut off money was cut off. And it was cut off uh, by the university. And by the way, I'm not going to say anything mean about the university, you can be sure, because number one, I love and respect this university. And number two, the formidable, formidable gentleman to my right is one of the people who I respect perhaps most in the world. Um, he is uh, Harry Evans, who is, is one of the original registrar of the university. Uh, and who will not stand, I think, for anything untoward to be said about the university. And he's also my father-in-law, and, and <laughs> he'll kick my butt. So <laughs> but I would like to say something about the university. The university cut off the money for this um, because at, uh, at the time there was a small research grant available to do research in drugs. and. We were doing research in drugs, but we weren't getting any outside grant money. Now, this, the people who cut it off, of course, are long gone. They're all retired, and some are dead, and, and I'm not criticizing anybody here. It was a bad decision. The, the idea was that, that you know, if you're not using grant money that you're getting in order to pull in grant money from outside agencies, then you're not doing your job as an academic. Uh, well, it was a bad decision because it's simply impossible. In those days, it was absolutely impossible to get grant money from outside agencies to do research, which contradicted the very nature of, uh, of the fundamental knowledge, what was taken to be the fundamental knowledge about, about drug addiction. There was no research outside money that we could have gotten. So of course, here now, now we're back 30 years or whatever, and here I am, a, a young man without gray hair, and, and totally mad, going around telling everybody in the university, this is crazy, you can't, you can't do this. 
and and they proved to me that they could. But it, it was a mistake, I think. And I, I think universities are in a very, very difficult position. This is the older man now thinks. Universities are in a terribly difficult position. They have to get money from public sources. They, they have no other choice but to do that. And they have to try to support research which will be which will change the world and improve the world. And usually the other sources don't approve of research which will change the world in particular ways because because the 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 sources have a vested interest in things being the way they are. I think universities are in that very difficult position. I think they always are. And I think they, they do their very best to both get themselves funded by, by, by doing what is uh, respectable, and number two, to provide opportunities for people like myself and, other, and countless others to do research which, which can perhaps change the world. I think universities are, I think my own university has been very good at seeking that balance. In my case, they, they definitely cut me off from research money, but they let me go. They, they never came after me and said, okay, you have to, you have to uh, change your topic and do something if you can get research money. They left me alone for, for 25 years after that. Um, and that was, that was the great gift. They, they allowed me to do what, what I think, what I think has turned out to be uh, something important and so I, I would just close by saying that I think we can we can all thank our university administrators for for handling that difficult task as well as as well as they do and, and wish them uh, very good fortune in doing it even better in the future so thank you very much What I have learned, of course, is, is, is the complexity of the salmon culture. It's not, it's not food, right? It's, it's a whole set of, it's the basis for a whole set of interrelationships with people, of sharing, of you know, trapping uh, in particular ritual ways and, and preserving in particular ways, all of which makes the, the, uh, the culture work. And you can't replace it with a, with a, a ration of, of flour and beans. That's, that's not going to do it. it, and you can't replace it with tin salmon either. It's 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 a very difficult problem. I uh, maybe I don't agree with you about about guilt. I, I don't think guilt is a very useful emotion. I think that um, every I think most of us, um, no matter how we might feel about salmon farming one way or the other, um, are 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 looking for solutions here, and and I, and I. I myself don't like—I uh, don't like to feel guilty, and I, and I don't like to to suggest that other people should either. I, I think that there are—I think solutions are possible, and I—I uh, I know they are, and, and um, I think we have to move in that direction. I think that these problems have got to be addressed at a, at a different level, and and I think, for example, um, just to switch levels on you completely, housing. We, we, have, we have big housing problems, and those housing problems have everything to do with addiction. Um, there's a lot of people down this road who are going to sleep outside tonight. Um, that's a big housing problem that has a, has a lot to do with their being able to, to um, get off their drug habits. But also, there's a lot of young families. I have seen so many people working very hard over decades in this field, and, and I, it's not getting better. In fact, it's visibly getting worse. And I, and I think we need more than, than you know, the kind of dedication that you're talking about. I think we, you know, there, there, I think it's a political issue. I, I think political controversy is unavoidable here. And um, not that I'm dedicated to controversy, but I do think political controversy is unavoidable here. I think we have to talk um, truth to, to people like, like our prime minister and and our uh, premier, um, because because I think this is a problem which which will only you know really be tackled in a, in a sensible way when we when we uh, when it's on the political agenda um, and not in the form of a, of a get tough on drugs thing, but on the political agenda as as the real problem that it is. We we obviously live in a time of imminent social change, 
and it's, it's, things are going to change. I mean, we just have to look at South America. People, popular governments have, have overthrown, you know, centuries of, of stupidity in, in uh, all over South America. That's, that's happening all over. Um, the, the big reason why, why we live in a uh, period of imminent social change is global warming, of course. We're going we're to drown if we don't if we don't uh, get on the get busy with social change. And and this is a time, unlike most times in history, where where social change has to happen very quickly, and, and we all know it. Um, I think, therefore, I, I'm optimistic. I I think that, you know, I I I keep meeting amazing people. And I keep seeing in the, in my own field, the field of drug addiction, let's say, I keep seeing that, that attitudes are dramatically different than they were 35 years ago, dramatically. Uh, so I think things will change. There's no doubt about that. And and it's just in you know it's everybody's job to be a little controversial when it's when it's necessary, and it's necessary now, I believe. You have been listening to The Local Brown Bagger on CFRO 102.7 FM in Vancouver, B.C. On today's Brown Bagger, you heard Dr. Bruce Alexander, Professor Emeritus from the Department of Psychology at Simon Fraser University, on the occasion of his acceptance of a prize in controversy from that university. He was speaking on globalization and addiction, which is also the topic of his book, recently released with that same title. We'll close with a song from the latest CD by Vancouver-based group Headwater. So back your bags up, back them up good and quick. Just got a bottle of medicine that might do the trick. And we're going to the place that we both know where. Three miles out of Memphis, halfway to hell. Straight down to nowhere town. Something that can't be found
controlled, so I'm taking your soul.